The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1, because it's first. But the key to Acts chapter 2, in fact, the key to Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, all the way through 28, and really the key to even what we are doing and what we're called to do as Christians and part of the church to this day is in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says this, words of Jesus, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the key to everything that's going to happen. It's like, you remember writing papers in school, you had your like topic sentence or your theme sentence there in the opening paragraph, and then everything that follows through the rest of your paper is supposed to be the outworking of that theme, that sentence, and that would be the case here for the book of Acts. This is the outworking of everything that Jesus had promised, but it doesn't just stop there. And so even as we're going through this text today, guys, I want you to think, like, even in this church gathering, like, what if it's supposed to be more? Like, what if it's supposed to be more than just getting together on a Sunday and then we go about the rest of our lives? And, and what if it's supposed to be more than even getting together for a Sunday and then an occasional Bible study? Or what if it's supposed to be much, much more than just getting together in little pockets of time? What if it's supposed to be something that consumes our life and drives us? What if this is to be the theme verse, not just for some book in the Bible, but for our very lives? That everything that would follow in our lives would be the outworking of what we read in Acts 1 verse 8. Because I would argue that if you have believed in that gospel that we just proclaimed before we uh, finished or before we had that opening prayer just there, that if you are a believer in that, who you have repented of your sins and Jesus Christ is your king, then I would argue that that's the intent. That now moving forward, Acts 1-8 should be the theme of our lives, what we are doing, why we are still here, the purpose of the church. Not just to the unbeliever outside the walls of the church, but to the believer inside, because you do know this, right? We don't ever move on from the gospel. Like the gospel is not just one of those things that we go, do you believe it? Yes. Okay, good. You're saved. Now let's move on to other things. We needed it this morning, didn't we? Because even coming in here this morning, there's this sense of like, oh, it's kind of a rainy day and I'm tired and all that. And then you hear the gospel and you're revived and you're like reminded of what's really important. Like we need the gospel preached to us at all times so that we would be witnesses of that gospel to one another, to people outside the walls here, into greater Oregon, into the United States, and all the way into Uganda with our brothers and sisters at the Oasis of Hope Church there, and even further than that. What if Acts 1 verse 8 is supposed to be the verse that is the theme that describes your life from right here forevermore into the kingdom of God? Because I believe we're going to continue declaring the gospel to one another for the rest of eternity as we stand in awe looking at Jesus in the flesh, just blown away, encompassed with awe that he in all of his majesty would do that. Because it's amazing to us now, and we haven't even eyes to eyes seen him yet. When we see him, we're going to be way more blown away because we have no idea how incredible he really is. Like we really don't have the ability to grasp the majesty of Jesus Christ. And one day we will, and we'll see him with scars 
which remind us of what he's done for us. We will declare the gospel forever. Amen? So Acts 1-8 is not just the theme for this series, not just the theme for this book of the Bible. This is our lives. So I want you to have that in the back of your mind as we go through Acts chapter 2. One of the most, uh, probably the most popular or most talked about um, chapter in the entire book of Acts, but usually, I believe, for the wrong reasons. Um, The first part of the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit comes, gets a lot of attention supernatural appearance of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues. It's crazy. It's amazing. It's this, this debated thing among different, you know, let's say versions or denominations of Christianity. It gets a lot of attention. The last section of the book of Acts, which will, or a book of Acts chapter 2, I should say, which we'll cover next week, also gets a lot of attention. It's kind of about the church and how the Christians actually went about their lives. And it describes this, this really beautiful way of living among one another that we should all read and just go, man, I want that in my life too. The part of the middle tends to get a little overlooked. Not that it's not important, or, we'll, or at least, let me say it this way, it gets mentioned in more broad terms, like, oh yeah, Peter had a sermon and 3,000 people got saved. But we don't give as much attention to it. We, it's kind of like, that's, he's just telling all the stuff that we already knew. But, but that's really the important part of the entire text. So looking at the book of Acts, this is where we're going to start. We're going to go verses 1 through 41 today. We'll finish out Acts chapter 2 next week. And it starts out, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Now you'll remember, last week Jesus said, go to Jerusalem, do not depart Jerusalem until the promise of the Holy Spirit is come upon you. And once that happens, you will then be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So they obey, they go to Jerusalem, they're all gathered together in this room and they're waiting for the promise of the Spirit and the day of Pentecost arrives. Now, Pentecost is a Jewish feast of weeks or Shavuot, is, I think I pronounced it wrongly. Um, so this particular feast was, it's kind of one of the lesser known of the Jewish feast, but it was still a very, very important one and very treasured one in the Jewish community. So it would happen, it's, it's also known as the Feast of Weeks, which means seven weeks after Passover. So on day 50, if you will, is when uh, Pentecost happens. And at first, the the emphasis to this was it was a celebration after the first fruits of the grain, or excuse me, the barley harvest. So they had two different crops that were going to be going. First would be the barley, and then would be the wheat. And so they would first get together right after the early harvest, when the first barley harvest had come, they would give first fruits to the Lord in thanks of what they had actually harvested, but also, and this is important, it was in anticipation of much more harvest to come. Does that make sense? So it's in thanks for the first harvest. It's the giving of these first fruits, but it's given in expectation of ongoing harvest that would come afterwards, all right? It also came to celebrate Israel's deliverance from Egypt and their provision through, uh, through the wilderness as they made their way through the desert to this place that was this land flowing of milk and honey. And so all this is kind of tied together really with God's provision. And so they would celebrate also at the same time, and many people believed it was the same day, that the law was given to Moses on top of Mount Sinai on that same day. So this festival would celebrate. It was thanks for the harvest, anticipation for the coming harvest. It was celebration for God's provision as he led them to a land flowing with milk and honey. And then it was also in celebration and in honor, and especially those who were devout Jews, with the giving of the law. 
And so it would be celebrated pretty, uh, um, pretty widely. Jerusalem would be full of people at this point. Very, very full of people. But it was sort of a mixed crowd. I mean, some historians tell us that because of the barley harvest and the stuff that was happening there, you had a bunch of farmers that are all coming together celebrating the fact that finally their crops had grown. And so they were kind of there to party. And then you had other people that were there because they're honoring their history. And then you had other people there who had maybe more a deeper, let's say, religious attachment to the holiday. And they're celebrating the the fact that the law had been given to Moses. And so they would begin teaching children. Like that's when they would start teaching young children some of the law. They would teach the alphabet and they had scriptures attached to it and all this kind of stuff. And they would even, as they started teaching the children the Torah, they would give the children milk and honey to eat and drink as they're going through the lessons. And they would tell them things out of scripture like God's word is sweeter than honey. God's word is so precious. And so they're trying to teach children to really value the benefit of God's word. So this is the festival that's going on. And, and there's actually, interestingly enough, a, this is sort of a sidebar that I found interesting. There's, there's a popular legend that actually grew among the Jewish people concerning the giving of God's word and law to the people of Israel. They began to teach in some circles that God actually went to every other people group on earth and offered the Torah, the law, the, the scriptures, the law of God to each individual nation in their own language first and no other languages, no other nations in the world wanted anything to do with it. And so then he came to Israel and they accepted it. Now that's kind of funny when you know the true story, right? I mean, can you not see how pride would leak in? Can you not see even some of the nationalistic, prideful, religious practices of some of the Jewish people even then? Because they're going, no one in the world even wanted to honor God, but we did. And what does the scriptures teach us? I mean, do you remember what they were doing when the law was given to Moses? They're worshiping a golden calf at the bottom of the hill when that happened. They were hardly seeking the true and living God. And God made it really clear, I didn't pick you because you were the greatest. I picked you because you were the weakest, and through you I could show myself strong. And so this festival had a really big kind of, um, it, it, it's a lot bigger than what we would think of to this day. In fact, most people today, when you think of Pentecost, actually attach it more to the Christian understanding of Pentecost and, and forget the fact that this was a big deal to the Jewish people. And so even though it's 50 days after Passover, there's a lot of people in Jerusalem for this festival. There's a lot of people that are gathered together there. The city is packed. And in verse, chapter, or verse 2, it says this, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So here we have the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus had talked about all along, that that he was sending the promise of the Father. And it says they're all gathered together in this room, And suddenly there's this sound of this rushing wind and then individual flames begin to appear above each person's head. And the next thing you know, all these people are speaking in these tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, fire is kind of an intentional symbol. Fire has always been associated with the presence of God throughout Scripture up to this time. I mean, think about when Moses comes to the burning bush and God revealed himself and spoke his will into Moses through the burning bush. Remember that? 
Um, there's, also, uh, there's also the pillar of smoke and pillar of fire that led Israel through the wilderness. And now keep in mind, all of this tied to the very holiday that they're celebrating, right? So fire is not an accident. So there's the pillar of fire, pillar of smoke that was leading the people of Israel through. And then if you know your Old Testament, what happened when the tabernacle or later the temple was consecrated to God, when the Spirit of God came upon the temple, what came with it? Fire and smoke, the scripture says. Second Chronicles 7, you can read about it. That that's how the people knew that God had come into his home and they would bow down and worship. So this idea of fire representing the presence of God is not on accident. It's as if right from the very beginning, God is saying, no, my, my new temple is in here. No longer am I stuck in, and keep in mind, they're outside the temple. They're outside the actual Jerusalem temple as this is taking place. And suddenly God's presence in the, the form of flames comes upon each of these people. It's as if he's saying, this is my new temple. This is where my spirit will reside now. And suddenly the people begin speaking in tongues. Now, this is not like closet prayer language or the... the uh, the, the angelic language that you might hear most often associated with speaking in tongues. 99% of the time when you talk with people throughout any areas of Christianity, when you talk about speaking in tongues, they're talking about a unknown prayer language, whether it be one that you and your prayer closet are doing on your own, whether it be one in a group of people and there's interpretation that comes with it. Um, we here believe that both of those things do still exist, but that, and we'll have to deal with those or anyone has to deal with that uh, when they're going through the scriptures passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 14. But that's not what's happening here. In this case, we are talking about known dialects. Um, the people are later going to respond here in a minute. And they're going to say, we hear them in our own tongues. Like we understand them. They're saying, these people don't really speak our language, but they're speaking our language. And I'm understanding what they're saying in my own language. There's this, this miracle that's taking place right here. Um, it, it would be as if and, and let me point one other thing out to him. What you're going to see them say in just a second, they're going to go, how can this be? They're Galileans. And that means a little more than just they're from Galilee. They should just speak that language. It kind of means like that they're not university educated multilingual scholars. They're country bumpkins from Galilee. How is this happening? It would be... <laughs> As if I stood up here and began declaring the gospel to you in perfect Mandarin. You would be like, wow, how is that possible? He's from North Carolina and he's speaking Chinese? That's a little weird. So this is just awe comes upon these people as all of these, these followers of Jesus gathered together with these flames above their heads begin just speaking. And no matter what language is coming out, there's people all around them that understand everything that's happening in their own language. Does that make sense? And now, what's really important, and it's important we know that because this, this is one of the texts that really gets used as sort of a proof text for why we should speak in tongues in a lot of ways, which, which I do still believe you can use. The Holy Spirit has come. I don't believe any of that's gone away. But it's not that kind of tongues that's happening right here. This is something unique and different that's happening here. What's really important is what they are saying. Because later, look ahead, we'll get to it, but look ahead in verse 11. In verse 11, what is it that it says? The people are talking about them and it says, 
Men of Galilee, nope, that's not the wrong word. I'm in chapter one. Let's try that one more time. See, North Carolina, just from North Carolina. How could he speak Mandarin? Verse 11, we hear them telling in our own tongues what? The mighty works of God. Right before this service started, when I just shared the reality of the gospel and what God has done, that's what they're doing. They're all doing this. They're all telling the reality, the truth of the gospel, what God has done, empowered by the Spirit in such a way that it doesn't matter that they're Galileans, country bumpkins, and uneducated, because the Spirit itself is doing the work to make sure that message reaches the heart of everyone that's around. Important for us to remember. We'll get to that later. So what's important to remember, they're preaching the gospel. They're not preaching just random, uh, um, random prophecies, random predicting the future. It's, it's nothing like that. They're sharing the gospel, and the whole world, if you will, has representatives around that are hearing all of this, and they understand it in their own tongues. Now, here's another little, for those of you that want to study deeper and read this this week, I would encourage you to do so. There's this story in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 11. Uh, You probably learned it in Sunday school if you grew up in church. It's about the Tower of Babel. You guys have heard this before, amen? So in the Tower of Babel, what happens? You've got these kingdoms of the world that are gathered together, and they decide, we are going to build this tower, and and we tend to like associate it with, we're going to build this tower so tall that we can make our way into heaven as if they believed that heaven was up there in the clouds and if they build a tall enough tower they're going to get there but what the text really says is that they're going to do so they're going to build this huge tower to make their name great so what are they doing they're on earth building a kingdom that's what's happening And what's the purpose of this kingdom? What is it that they want to get out to the rest of the world? They want the greatness of their name, their identity, their accomplishments, how powerful we are. They are exalting themselves and they want the whole world to be able to see this tower and know how amazing they are. And what happens? God scatters them. He sends confusion upon the people and suddenly we have this new mix of tongues. Suddenly guys who are there like mortar and brick building the tower right next to one another, they're like, man, it's hot out here. And the guy says, por qué? And they just don't even know what's going on. They, they cannot understand themselves at all. And there's great confusion that exists. One's talking, the other doesn't understand, and division ends up happening because of that. And from that, we have the table of nations, the people scattered all over the world. Everything changes from that moment. So think about it. When man is building his own kingdom, the result is what? Division and strife and misunderstanding, poor communication, things we see to this day, sometimes even among the same language. Amen, people? But what happens when God's building his kingdom. People from every tribe and tongue coming together and suddenly there is understanding, there is awe, there will be community and salvation because they're no longer trying to make their name great. They are extolling and lifting up the name of Jesus. Church, I'll tell you this. A lot of us don't like to use this word because sometimes it's been really politicized and things like that. But listen, diversity is very, very godly. And the way to achieve diversity in this world 
is not to focus on the differences of all the people that are involved in said diversity project. The way to achieve genuine, lasting, godly diversity is to extol the name of Jesus among one another, regardless of our differences. To try to take our eyes, not that we try to all become one, but that we become as one, lifting the name of Jesus among all nations. And in particular, it's the move of the Holy Spirit that actually accomplishes this. So as you go through the rest of the New Testament, read Ephesians, read Corinthians, read all these texts where Paul over and over and over is encouraging the people of the church to be one, but it's always tied to a move of the Holy Spirit that's going to accomplish it. So when man extols himself and tries to show how great he is, division comes, misunderstanding comes, strife comes. When the name of Jesus is lifted up and the Holy Spirit comes upon God's people, there's unity and people are brought together and there's understanding and there's community and there's love. That's the model for the church, amen? It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. So this is what's happening. The church is being formed. Israel, now keep in mind, Israel was formed by the giving of the law. There's this group of people that are taken out of slavery in Egypt. They're in the wilderness. Moses goes up on the hill. God gives the law to Moses, and this is what's going to govern the people of Israel and govern their relationship between God and this nation called Israel. But when the church is created, it's not built on the law. It's built on the Holy Spirit active through the people that are members of the church. And I still think to this day we spend too much time trying to make the law do things that only the Holy Spirit can do. Like we can make regulations that govern people. We can make rules that govern people. But the thing that bonds people and heals people and saves people is when the Holy Spirit does a work in their lives. Amen? I was just even reading this book. I would commend to all of you if you want to read it. It's fantastic. It's called The Art of Neighboring. And in this book, it's talking about this, this lost art that we have where we don't even ha- most of us don't even know the names of our neighbors in our own neighborhood, much less how to bridge gaps, and especially for the name of Jesus, like how do we do some of this? And he was talking about how so often in our neighborhoods, we use the law to do what only the Spirit can do. So for example, in your neighborhood, let's say one night you're falling asleep and you just want a nice restful sleep, but the neighbors are partying, and they always party, don't they? And they're partying and they're loud and they're noisy and you smell weed, which now it's Oregon, so I know that's nothing new anymore, but that happens and all of that, like, and there's all this going on and you just want to sleep, you want peace and all this kind of stuff. So what's the first inclination? Call the cops. That'll fix it, right? Will it? It doesn't fix it. What's the end result? We always think we can call anonymously too, right? But they know, they know it was us. We're looking for the law to do what only, the, what only the Spirit can do. And so in this case, we see the church is built by the very Spirit of God, given us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, something that the law given by Moses could never do. Amen, church? So, the church is formed. Verse 5 says this, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, for, I think that's funny, by the way. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews. You're like, oh, Shocker. Um, Devout men from every nation under heaven. Every nation under heaven just happens to be there, right? And at this, by the way, there's no coincidences, right? We know that, amen? Just making sure. At this sound, the multitude came together. So they hear the rushing wind. They know something's happening. They're rushing to see what's going on. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished. 
saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Medford and White City and Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In other words, everybody. They're like, it's everybody's here. We hear them telling in our tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking, because there's always someone mocking. Amen? Just remember that too. Like in our, in our desire to want to see loved ones get saved and those of us who might take on seriously the mission of God to share the gospel with others, it doesn't matter how amazing the presentation is, someone's going to mock. Because my guess is our presentation to our neighbors won't be as impressive as rushing wind, fire, and speaking in unknown languages to other people. Just a guess. God can do anything. Just guessing. But even in front of all of that, people are like, Oh, they're drunk. They're drunk. It's those barley farmers, and you know what they make with that barley, and they're just, their harvest is done, and they're just still drunk. Those guys probably haven't even been to bed all night, is what they're saying. But Peter, and this is where historically, if we didn't know better already, we would go, no, anyone but Peter. Someone grab Peter by the shoulders, pull him back down, and kick John out there. Like, John will be all right, but not Peter. Or maybe we should just roll with Matthias, the guy who just filled the slot. He's got way less garbage in his background as far as we know, but not Peter. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. He's like, guys, it's 9 a.m. They ha- happy hour won't start forever. They're not drunk. Come on. And then look what he says, verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And he quotes Joel here. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter just says here, like, guys, you know what this is. I mean, remember, these guys are gathered to Israel. Why? To celebrate the harvest and to celebrate the giving of the word of God. And he's saying, look, those of you who gather together to value the word of God, you know what this is. It's no accident that you're here. You've read about this your whole lives. This is what Joel promised. This is what's happening right in front of your eyes. And to make, here's the one problem that I have. And I told you before, like the thing Peter's saying is more important than the way that it gets emphasized. Because historically, most churches, especially in the more charismatic realm, tend to emphasize more the reality, the nature of the tongues than what's actually being said in that moment. 
Listen, Jesus says this in John chapter 15. He said, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So Jesus said, On the day that the Helper comes, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, when he shows up and when he comes, he's going to do something when he gets there. What is the thing he's going to do? He's going to point people to me. And so here's the text where the Holy Spirit shows up and he's come upon all these people and they're declaring the wonderful works of God for us to stop short of realizing and thinking about what message is actually being proclaimed and to instead focus on the supernatural part of what's actually being said and make it more about the gifts instead of the giver of gifts is to fall short of what even Jesus said was going to happen in that day. The point of it is not the Holy Spirit. The point of it is the gospel and the Holy Spirit empowering the gospel message to go forth to all people and all lands. Does that make sense? I believe in tongues. I do. I don't have that gift myself, but I believe it still exists. I do. So, so those of you that are charismatics out there, keep your seatbelt on. I'm not saying that those things don't exist, don't believe, but I'm saying on Acts chapter 2, let's not get the cart before the horse. Let's keep things in their proper perspective. If we make a bigger deal than, uh, out of tongues than we do the gospel, we've got it backwards. Does that make sense, church? And so he's reminding them of what's happening here. Hey, the Holy Spirit's come upon these people to testify to Jesus, just like the Old Testament said that it would. And so Peter goes on to share with these guys what it's really about, to help them kind of put these things together. In the same way Jesus spent, remember, all that time with his apostles after the resurrection, helping them put all these things together so they would understand what the scriptures were saying all along. So this is what Peter starts doing here. And so verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. One thing you can write down if you're taking notes in your scripture journal there, the gospel always tells the truth about us. Amen? Think about it here. First of all, it takes a lot of boldness for Peter. 50 days after Jesus got killed, they're outside the temple to say, by the way, you killed him. Like he, he's pointing a finger. But think about this. There's people from like every tribe, nation, and tongue. So that means there's people there. In fact, I would say the vast majority of people there, they never grabbed a nail. They never hammered the spike. They didn't raise up the cross. They weren't the ones voting in the verdict. Most of the people there, we would say in a court of law today, had nothing to do with the death of Jesus Christ. But Peter says to them, and he'll say it twice. He's going to say it again later, lest we forget. You killed him. And if Peter were here giving this sermon, he would look every single one of us in the face and he would say, this Jesus that you crucified. And what he means by that is this. The death that Jesus experienced carried the sin that we committed. And the penalty that Jesus bore on our behalf for the wages of sin is death. Jesus took that on for us. He swapped our place. It was our rebellion and our sin and the punishment for those sins that something had to be done about. And Jesus is the one that stepped into it. So he took our punishment, not his. Amen? He was perfect, we are not. Our sin is the reason that he died. That's what he's saying. 
And one of the coolest things that I always thought, you guys know the old movie, I, th- I think we're allowed to talk about Mel Gibson again. I think so. He's in movies again now. Um, <laughs> you know how it goes. But um, when The Passion of the Christ was done, Mel Gibson directed it. He was only in one scene. Do you know what scene that was? In the scene when Jesus' hands were nailed to the cross, that's actually Mel Gibson's hands right there, nailing. You don't see him, you just see his hands. And when they asked him about it, he was saying, I killed him. It's because of me that Jesus died. That's the only scene that he's in. That's what Peter's saying right here. The gospel always tells the truth. And that's one of the reasons why it's so offensive that it's saying, listen, we are guilty. And we want to go, I'm not that bad. They're the ones that voted into the cross. I didn't do all that. And the gospel says, no, there is level playing field for everyone. We are all guilty. We have all fallen short of God. We have all sinned against God. Uh, Romans 5 says we are all enemies of God. We are all guilty. To some, that news is humbling. To some, that news makes them angry and is frustrating and is offensive. And which one of those you are makes all the difference in the world because people that are mad at such a message don't tend to bow their knees in repentance for it. Humble people do. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It means literally, blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt, who say, you're right, I'm guilty. There is nothing good in me. I am guilty of the death of Jesus. The same thing that Peter's saying there. So this is what he's telling them. But he doesn't stay there. Look at what he says next. Verse 24. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Now I want you guys to notice this. This is super cool. He says to him, you're all guilty. You crucified Jesus. And so maybe you're one of those people in that crowd that's humbled by that news, that that understands that reality, and you're like, I am guilty. What do I do now? And then he says to them what? He says, but God. And listen to what he does. He says, for David, who they all would know, right? He says, David said this, I saw the Lord always before me. Does that phrase kind of ring a bell to another David saying that we tend to remember when we think of David and his Psalms? There's another Psalm where David says that something's always before him. Does anybody know what that is? You can yell it out. I don't mind. My sin right? After the instance with Bathsheba, after the sin that David committed, he's in this place and he's writing and he says, my sin is ever before me. But Peter here reaches to a different psalm, one where David's talking about the fact that he turned his eyes upon God and he says, I saw the Lord always before me. What he's saying to these people who understand who he's proclaiming to them their guilt, their rebellion against God, he's saying, but you don't have to die in that. Like, there's people in this room that constantly allow the devil to whisper in their ear the sins that they've committed, that constantly allow the enemy to tell you you're not worth it, that constantly condemn you and keep you stuck in darkness and in shame. And Peter's saying, there's something else you could look at. There's something else you could put before you that brings hope and brings good news. He says, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. 
or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Even this morning, like, and that, this wasn't planned. You know, I, I, I trust that it was the Holy Spirit that wanted that to happen. But like, I didn't come in this morning going, they're probably going to be tired. We'll declare the gospel and sing another song before we go into the sermon. That wasn't like the goal, right? But didn't it boost your heart a little when you started to think about that? That's what he's doing. He's preaching the gospel. He's saying, listen, you're guilty. But that's not the end of the story. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means you now have an advocate and he will not leave you in hell. You deserved it for sure. You killed Jesus. But you don't have to go there. The resurrection of Jesus shows us that a pathway to hope has been made by Jesus. And this is where people's hearts just go, oh, thank God, quite literally. This is good news, amen? This is really good news. Verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Now we've got to do a little Old Testament work here really quickly. So here's what he's doing. He's saying, guys, listen, there's hope. You have a Savior because of Jesus Christ. And the people would say what? Amen. Can, you, can we get an amen for that? There's hope. But he's not just a Savior. He, he's not just a get out of jail free card. He's, just, he's not just a super generous person who did something really nice for you. You need to understand he's so much more than that. And he goes into this text. What he's talking about here as he goes into David and he's like, before David died, God promised him that one was going to sit on the throne who would not die and experience corruption the way David has, the way that we all will. What he's pointing to is what's referred to as the Davidic covenant. And in that story, and it's really interesting, this is happening outside the temple. Keep that in mind. In that story, David is living in this palace and he looks out and he sees the tabernacle where everybody would worship God. And the presence of God is resting in the tabernacle. Tabernacle is a fancy Jewish word for tent, really. It's a tent. David's the king in a palace and he's like, the presence of God lives in this tent. That's not right. God's been so good to me. I need to be good to him. And so he says, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build a house for God, one that's worthy of him because a tent is not good enough and his heart in that is so good and so pure. But God, for other reasons, we don't have time to go down the roads on, says to him, no, David, you're not going to be the one to do that. David's son would end up being that one. But he says to David, but I got something else. And I got the text for this. If you'll put this text up, this is 2 Samuel 7. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers... I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he'll be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not but depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, 
your throne shall be established forever. This is referred to as the Davidic covenant. And in this covenant, God says to David, I know you want to build me a house, but I'm up to something much, much bigger than just a place for my spirit to reside now. Here's what's going to happen, David. Long after you're dead, I'm going to build you a house. And he's speaking in terms of lineage or heritage there, right? He's saying, after you, one's going to come. He will not experience the corruption that you have. In fact, he'll sit on the throne and reign forever. David, you're headed towards the end of yours. Your reign will not last forever, but the one that's going to come through your lineage will rule and reign forever. And so now going back to Acts, Peter, he shares with them, hey, you have a savior. There is a sacrifice made on your behalf that you can be reunited with God. You have a savior and he's the king. He's the king you've been waiting for since day one. He's the Messiah that you have longed for. He's the greater harvest that you've always hoped would come. He's the greater sacrifice, but he's Lord. It's not just that someone did something amazing on your behalf. It's that the greatest one in the history of the world is the one who did something amazing on your behalf. You have a Savior and a King. Church, don't forget both of those. Amen? He is your Savior and he's your Lord. The King who will rule and reign forever. Amen? This is what he's telling them here in this text. And you'll see this as he continues here. Verse 32, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we're all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and you're hearing. This king has gone into heaven, he's at the right hand of God, and now he's pouring his spirit out on you. So all this that you're seeing, this is what's going on. He's just explaining to them what's happening right here. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him what? both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who, once again, whom you crucified. So really, what is he doing? He's preaching the gospel. Remember last week, those of you that were with us? Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. There is a Lord. The fall, we've sinned against him. Redemption, but he's made a way that we might be reunited with him. Restoration, and the king is coming again to make all things right. He's preaching the gospel to these people. But more than that, he's actually explaining to them what all the believers in Jesus are preaching. Because don't forget that point. They are all declaring the marvelous works of God. And people are hearing that in their own language. To use football language since it's Sunday in football season, he's kind of the color commentator. He's coming alongside going, here's what this means, guys. This is what Peter's doing. He's explaining the gospel to the people that are there. And so look what happens, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. That's one of the things Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would do, that the Holy Spirit would come and convict people of sin. And they feel the conviction of all this. And they're like, so what do I do with this news then? And Peter said to the rest of the apostles, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. You could almost add in there, even people in Medford, Oregon in 2019. Amen? That's what we're here for. That's why we're here. That what Peter said, and more importantly, what Jesus had said before him, came true. And we in this room are living, walking evidence of the reality of this. And he tells him, it's true. So repent of your sin, turn to Jesus, be baptized into the family of Christ, because this is for you too, guys. It's like you don't have to just sit and watch what's all the ministry that's taking place right here, right now. You're part of this, or you're intended to be. So repent. Be baptized and be part of what's going on right here. It says in verse 40, and with many other words, he bore witness. So we don't have the whole sermon. He, he spoke more. Most preachers do tend to say more than is needed. And continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now remember, what day is it? It's Pentecost. Part of the celebration of Pentecost is expectation of coming fruit, coming harvest. So this 3,000 that happens here is just the start. And, and we're still part of it too. And we're not the end. Amen, church? But this is, this is the reality. This is the story here. And this is Peter. Remember, remember Peter? Like, foot in mouth Peter. Says everything wrong at the wrong time Peter. Like Peter who, <laughs> on top of the mountain when Jesus is transfigured and his glory shows forth and, and Moses and Elijah are there and the presence of God is there, he's, he's witnessing something unlike ever seen before in the history of the world. And instead of standing there with his jaw on the floor and watching, he goes, well, it's a good thing we're here. That's what he actually said. And Peter does this. And these people, these untrained, just Galileans, they're just farmers from Galilee. And 3,000 people outside the temple come to salvation. But remember, this is the same Peter who, what, one day says to Jesus, thou art the Christ, the Son of the Most High God. And what did Jesus respond to him and say? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Blessed are you, Peter. Because it wasn't flesh and blood that taught you this. It was, it was your Father in heaven. In other words, it's like this was revealed to you by God. So what we're seeing here in Acts chapter 2 is just a longer sermon. But it's the same thing. It's not that Peter's so smart. It's not that Peter can preach. It's not that Peter's so gifted. It's that the Spirit of God has come upon him and brought power to words through a man who could barely put a sentence together to save his life otherwise. And 3,000 people get saved. And here we are in 2019 still studying this incredible act and sermon that takes place. It's truly remarkable. It's truly remarkable that we would be here this morning even reading this text. And that's a work of the Spirit of God. It really is. So what should we take away from this? Oh my gosh, is time out? Is that right? Did you even start the clock? What time is it? Oh, we got time. Okay, so <clears throat> what should we take away from this passage? I'm going to do it quick, though, because we do need to worship. Number one, here's some things we can take away from this. Number one, the reality that from that day until today, the kingdom of God is breaking in. What happens in that moment is the establishment, if you will, of an embassy. Think about this. In an embassy, 
an ambassador from another nation comes to another nation, if you will, plants a flag, builds a building, whatever the case may be, but has a place of land inside the boundaries of another sovereign nation, but they're there to do what? To represent the interests of the nation that sent them. And even more specifically, the the actual ambassador, say for the United States in whatever country he goes to, is actually there to represent the interests specifically of the president of the United States. And so here we have this particular case where an ambassador is being, let me, let me tell you, like we don't think about it so much, but in Uganda, the U.S. embassy in Uganda is a big deal to Ugandans. It's a huge deal to Ugandans. And they look at it one of two ways, most often both actually. They look at it, number one, as a place where, man, we'll never get through there. I wish we could. I hear there's great things on the other side of that but we'll try. I hear they turn a lot of Ugandans away though, because Ugandans go there to try to apply for their visas in, in hopes of coming out and coming to America. Most of which, as is the case in most places, most of them get rejected. But they look at the embassy though, not just as a place of rejection. It's like, it's hope. Because the Ugandan people genuinely believe if I can make it through that building and if the guy in that building will accept me, then I get to go to the land of milk and honey. That's what they genuinely believe. And if someone goes in there and gets their actual uh, visa to be able to come to America, they would walk out of that place, you might say to quote Acts, walking and leaping and praising God. And they literally would believe all my problems are over now. No more poverty. I'm going to the land where everybody's rich. No more being stuck here under corruption and corrupt government. I'm going to the place where everything's made. Now we know they've put their hope in a way lesser heaven. Amen? But that absolutely shows what happens, what the church is supposed to be about. Like the rest of the world should look at the church as the place of hope and not a place that rejects everyone else but a place that brings them in, a place that knows how they can get through, a place that has, as Peter preached it, this this pathway has been made to hope and you can find it in there. Whether it be in your household, in your Bible study, in your community, whatever the case may be, the church corporately should be that ambassadorship of the kingdom of God that represents the interests of our king and that holds the keys to hope that the rest of the world desperately wants. Amen? That's still true today. Number two, Pentecost means everyone can have access to God. I mean, think about what he says in the sermon. You killed Jesus and you can be reunited to his father. If you can kill my kid and still be reunited to me, you're probably nothing going to disqualify you from being my friend. And this is what he's saying. Not, not just, but he's also saying it to every tribe, every nation, every tongue. In other words, everyone can have access to God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, even you. Amen? And don't forget the awe of that. Don't forget the awe of that. Number three, Pentecost means that we are all to be preachers of the gospel by the Spirit. And I just for the sake of time, I'm going right into this one. I should say, like, I, I really wanted to spend more time on the last one. Like, please, Don't forget the awe and the truth that 
Acts chapter 2 reminds us of the gospel and reminds us of our salvation. Because I think too quickly we can skip past that and run straight to, so here's all the things that we should do because of Acts chapter 2. And I don't want that. Acts chapter 2 should not become some like guilt-laden, now everybody go be Peter. It should start with awe of the message of Peter because we're included in it. Amen? So don't forget the awe of that. But the truth is, Every single person is to be a preacher of the gospel, empowered by the Spirit. Now, in our culture, it's a little different. Um, well, let's think of it this way. In, in Joel's text that Peter alludes to a lot, he looks and foretells of a day where every believer would be a prophet from every tribe and tongue. But it goes back even further than that. There's this text in the Old Testament where Moses is there, and Moses is tired. Moses is exhausted. And he's like, man, I, I want to raise up some elders to do some of this work because I'm just wiped out. So he raises up some elders and the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they're serving. And some of the people are really freaked out by this. They're like, what do you, it's not you, Moses. These people are doing this and they're just really weirded out that all these other people are doing these things that before it was just Moses that he was doing. And look what Moses says in Numbers chapter 11, verse 29. Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And this is what, what Moses didn't even realize he's talking about in that moment happened in Acts chapter 2. Because his spirit comes upon all the believers and everyone there is preaching. Now in our modern context, what we tend to do in our church services is we put the preacher teacher up in front and everyone else just sits there and listens and doesn't hear it. But we equate that to what happens in Acts chapter 2. But let's not forget the fact that they're not in the Acts, they're, they're not in the synagogue, they're not in the temple, they're outside of the temple. And what we're going to see as we go on through the book of Acts, that this setting here is someone training you to do that. This is not the ministry. This is the training ground for the ministry that takes place somewhere else. That all God's people are to be empowered by the Spirit and that all God's people are to be preaching the Spirit. And you're like, but I can't do that. I'm not a gifted speaker. I'm terrified of public speaking. I haven't been to seminary. It's Peter. Like, it's Peter. The difference isn't in the, it's not like he suddenly got good. It, it's, the reality is, he knew the gospel, the Holy Spirit came upon him, and he shared it. And I would say this again, it's not just Peter. It's Galileans. It's country bumpkins that are uneducated, and they're speaking the marvelous works of God, and 3,000 people get saved. Guys, this isn't, this isn't, the end-all be-all of church right here. This is not it. Like, this is just like the huddle. That's what we say all the time. And in the end, it's ready, break. And then you go play the game, right? And so I want to encourage you, like if your total view of what it means to be a Christian and to be part of a church is just this, then your definition or realization of church is far smaller than what it's intended to be. And if that freaks you out, I would say, then you don't fully understand the power of the Holy Spirit and what God can do through you. But there's, there, you can experience it. Let me tell you, the Bible knows nothing of passive Christianity. It doesn't exist in Scripture. It's not real. 
Christianity is something that encompasses the believer to such a degree that they have to do something. It becomes the governing factor for the rest of their life. Every area, every compartment is dominated by the gospel of Jesus Christ and the call to share the gospel and to bring it to all people. Starting first within this room because we share with one another as we did before this service and then carrying it outside the walls. Just consider quickly some of Paul's writings. Colossians 3.16 says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. He's saying, hey, church, he's not writing it just to the pastor. He's saying, hey, church, let God's word dwell in you so you can use it to encourage one another. He's presuming that you will and that you can by the Spirit's power. And then look in Romans 15, 14. Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Even you Galileans. It's like, you got it. You've got what you need. You know the gospel. You've got the scriptures. Go. Like, we are called to be prophets, all of us. And who were prophets in the Old Testament? They had intimate relationship with God that the rest of the world didn't have. And they had intimate revelations from God, usually through dreams and visions. Well, we have relationship with God like the rest of the world doesn't have because of what's been made available to us through Jesus Christ. And we have intimate relationship, or excuse me, an intimate revelation of God, his word and his will right here. And then on top of that, we have the spirit of God dwelling in us. We don't have to go to a temple to experience the spirit of God. We are now the temple of God, carrying the good news of God's word to the world around us. Like, I got to think if we really understood what a big deal that is, we'd probably live a little differently, myself included. I got to think that's the truth. But the Bible knows nothing at all about passive Christianity. We are all called. And, and, but on top of that, let me remind you, the last point that I would make is that Pentecost means that the promise of the Holy Spirit is for everyone. Because remember, Jesus did tell them, don't go trying this until you have my spirit. Like, don't do this until go to Jerusalem and wait for the spirit to come upon you. And I, I'll tell you, I, for years, I, I've had interactions with people and, I, and I've had these kind of myself as, as well. So I'm not pointing fingers. I'm, I'm in here. Um, but people just like, I just want to experience a move of the Spirit. Man, I just don't feel like I'm experiencing a move. I just want to experience that. But if we're being really honest, the vast majority of the time that we talk about that, we're talking about a service. We really are. Like, I want to experience a church service with music that's so moving and the mood so, it's like the Spirit just came and we're weeping and we're all this kind of stuff. But you're not going to see much of that in the book of Acts. Oh, the Spirit can move among a church service. I mean, who among us that's been following Jesus for any length of time hasn't been in a service where the, the pastor or someone said something and you're like, that was the Holy Spirit telling me that right there. Who, who among us hasn't been encouraged by others with words of prophecy or knowledge or things that take place? Like that happens for sure. But the Spirit was given that the people might go. And the vast majority of the incredible things that the Holy Spirit does through people are outside the walls of the sanctuary. Even in this case, they're not in the temple, they're outside the temple. 
And I wonder if for a lot of us who would say, man, I just want to experience a move of the Spirit. I wonder if we don't experience it because we don't ever step out and give it a shot. We stay in places where we don't need the Holy Spirit to do anything. We stay in rooms where everyone here is saved and there's not really a dependence or a need. There's not a risk. There's not a, a stepping out. It's, it's all under our control. We've got the training we need for this. This is safe. We don't need anything here. But what about stepping out? Could God be calling you to that? To your next door neighbor or the little league team you're coaching or the workplace that you lead? Or to the people in the church calling you to step out and begin to serve and minister and express the gospel to different people in other settings over and over. I'll answer it for you. I know he's calling you to that. Because he calls all of us to that. Amen, church? So here's what I want to do. We're going to close in worship right now. It's a time of response. If you're new here with us, during response time, there's a couple of different things that will take place. Uh, We'll encourage people to pray specifically today. I'll get to that in a second. There's time to give. Um, the guys will come forward here, the guys and gals, and they'll pass baskets. And as those baskets go by, that's how we respond to the gifts of God, by giving back to Jesus to support the mission of spreading the gospel throughout the world all around us. And so if you want to be a part of that, man, we invite you, partner with us, and, and let's make much of Jesus' name in that way. Um, and there's going to be singing. And like we don't sing just randomly. We sing even that text in Colossians told us that as the word of God dwells richly in our hearts, one of the responses to that is that we sing the goodness of God. And we don't just sing randomly. We're not singing, you know, Mary had a little lamb. We're singing the gospel in the songs that we sing. So we do that to worship God and to remind ourselves of the good things that God has done. But for those today, let me just say like the Heritage family or specifically those who have put their faith in Jesus, let me, let me just encourage you. Like when is the last time that you have asked God, Lord, may your spirit come upon me? God, I, I, I want to experience a move of your spirit. I want to be able to experience these kinds of things that take place. I want to be able to minister to my neighbors. I want to be able to do all these kinds of things, but I'm just a Galilean. I'm just a Galilean, I'm nobody. I would say then you're in the perfect spot. You're in the perfect spot. The scriptures say that if a good father will give good gifts to his children, how much more will God the Father give his Holy Spirit to his children if they'll but ask? So ask. It's kind of interesting that the pouring rain kicks in right now. Those of you that that kind of know some of your Bible imagery, the water is actually a representation, a picture of the Spirit. And even right now in this building, the water pours over it. But how much more would God love to have His Holy Spirit pour upon every single one of you this morning? Will you ask Him? You've got about three songs worth of time to do it. And then you've got the opportunity as we leave to move forward and step out in faith and trust that he'll show up and have your back and do what he promises that he'll do. But don't make the Holy Spirit about you. When the power of Babylon was built, it was about them. And it ended in confusion and division. Make the Holy Spirit about Jesus, that you might fulfill the calling of Jesus moving forward. Amen? This time the doorkeepers are going to come forward. When they finish, when the basket goes by, I want to encourage you, stand, sing, pray. But Heritage family, don't miss this chance. Ask that the same thing that happened in Acts chapter 2 will happen for you in this place because God's promises that it's available to us all. Father, may this be a consecrated time, Lord, as we worship and sing. 
I pray that your spirit would move powerfully in this room right now, but not just for the sake of some sort of Holy Spirit experience in this room, but God, may you empower us to live by your spirit outside of this room. May you minister to your people and may our songs and our prayers and our giving minister to you for you are worthy of our praise. In Jesus' name. Waking my soul